Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 51 of Unknown Orbits, Killdozer by Theodore Sturgeon. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Killdozer is an infamous story, mainly because of the TV movie that was an adaptation of it in the 1970s, which we will get to in a little bit. But the story itself was published in November 1944 in Astounding Magazine. So the story takes place during World War II on an island in the Pacific Ocean where a group of construction workers are racing to build an airstrip for the Air Force or the Navy. The story begins as an ancient electron-based life form is trapped inside of a container by some ancient people, which is unspecified. I think it was the Waveries. It was, they're very, it's very much like the Waveries, except meaner, I guess. They're a meaner form of the Waveries. So it's sealed up in a neutronium box, which I'm not even sure exactly what that is, but Neutronium is formed when a star is burning out and collapsing and becomes a neutron star. All the electrons and protons are gone, and we just have neutrons. The thing is, it's so dense that a piece the size of like a walnut would weigh the same as the Earth. So that would be a very handy item that would be readily available to an ancient civilization on Earth to use to trap an angry alien. Flash forward to World War II. And they're trying to clear an area where this ancient temple was located. And a bulldozer strikes the corner of this box or whatever it is. And it releases the alien. And the alien immediately takes possession of the bulldozer. And sets out on a path of trying to murder all of the humans on the island. Initially, the foreman of the gang is suspected of having murdered the first guy that dies. And of course, when he begins telling stories about... Uh, a bulldozer that's driving itself and come alive. They don't believe him initially and until it becomes obvious to everyone that, yes, there is a killer bulldozer trying to murder them all. Which is a pretty standard way of getting a little tension into the story, yeah. having the guy not believed. Yeah. That part of the story, Sturgeon does a decent job with. So eventually it kills most of the crew and they come up with a very complicated scheme at the end to destroy it or suck the energy out of it or, or whatever. So they're left with a uh, island full of dead workers and destroyed equipment and their only way they can explain it to their bosses is that an evil alien possessed a bulldozer and that's not a good thing so fortunately for them the japanese show up and they bomb the island and blow everything up and they survive and that covers up all the evidence and they don't have to tell everybody that there was a evil bulldozer trying to kill them i didn't like this story i mean i like the plot of the story basically and it's partly because I read it way back in the day before the TV movie came out, so I was kind of really looking forward to the TV movie. But you can tell that Mr. Sturgeon, who was a bulldozer pusher during World War II, had way too much technical knowledge 
of bulldozers and construction equipment because he layers so much of that detail in this story that it was just an utter slog to try to get to the end. It was literally one of those stories where you're like, oh God, can we just get to the part where you kill the alien? Oh, I can't. Please, let's just get to the whatever stupid way you come up with to trick the alien and lure him into the sand pit and blow him up and whatever you're going to do. It was a slog. You know, there's an old writer story that was passed down to me back when travelogues were very popular. The story goes, oh yeah, Joe Smith came out with the travelogue. What was it like? Oh, it was terrible because he actually went there. (laughs) So I do like Theodore Sturgeon. He wrote one of my favorite stories, It, which is a great story about a bog monster. Oh, is that the one where chemicals come together and life is created and it's crawling out of the bog? Yes, it somehow coalesces around a human skeleton and that gives it form. I think I read that. Yeah, that's a really good story. Maybe we should have picked that one rather than Killdozer. But the reason we picked Killdozer, and we'll get to that in a minute, is because of the movie. So anyway, some people like the story because it won a retro Hugo Award for Best Novella. And by the way, novella, this should not have been a novella. This should have been a short story. Because if you strip away 90% of all that technical jargon about bulldozers, it would have been a nice short story. He probably blew it up to a novella because he needed the cash. Yeah. On a per word basis. It reminds me now of those YouTube videos where the headline is, I dig out my own swimming pool and there's a picture of a bulldozer or something. And when you go in there, it's half an hour long and he's talking about all the maintenance he's doing on the thing. Yeah. So as I said, Sturgeon was not a bad writer. He actually was one of those science fiction writers that started out in the pulps. He wrote a lot of different kind of stories. He actually wrote a couple of Ellery Queen novels, one of which apparently was very popular, one of the more popular Ellery Queen novels. Was he declared one of the science fiction grandmasters? I believe he was. Yeah, one of those honors that they give to you when you're 90 years old in a nursing home. So he wrote several beloved Star Trek episodes. Shore Leave, that's the one where they go to the planet and uh, all the weird things start happening to them. With the rabbit? With the rabbit. Okay. Yeah, the white rabbit. And a mock time where Spock gets horny. Oh, yes. And he's actually the one who invented Live Long and Prosper. Oh. So that's a pretty significant feather in your cap. Did you know that Leonard Nimoy invented the hand signal, like, on the spot? Yes. Yeah, I've heard that. But Live Long and Prosper, Theodore Sturgeon. Good job, Theodore. So he's also famous for Sturgeon's Law, which reads, 90% of science fiction is crud, but then 90% of everything is crud. See, I read a non-PG-13 version of that. I'm sure that probably was the original quote. So I wouldn't recommend anybody read this particular story. It was just too much of a slog. But as I said, the reason we did this and the reason why anybody else might be interested in it is because of the 1974 TV movie, Killdozer, which has over the years become infamous for being a bad movie. I think your opinion of this movie is strongly dependent on how old you were when you saw it. I was nine and I loved it. Yeah. You and I watched this, I should say, you and I rewatched this movie last night. And it is not a good movie. It is not a terrible movie, though. There are parts of it that are not bad. The strong points for me were they did a really cool job of somehow driving and operating a bulldozer without anybody visibly operating it. That special effect was pretty good. The cab where the driver sits is completely open. You can't hide in it. Right. 
And this is 1974, so there's no CGI or anything, so they all had to be done practical. I was very impressed with how well they pulled that off. They didn't do a lot of cheats, you know, like not showing the cab of the bulldozer. They did it really well. So they must have spent some money to have a specially designed bulldozer made or something. I don't know. But it was really good. And some of the scenes where it was attacking people were kind of exciting. Yeah. Not a masterpiece of suspense. The big problem with this movie was the writing was bad. That was the worst part of the movie. You and I were sitting here watching it going, well, they should have done this. I'll give you a great example. So the main character, the boss of the gang, is played by Clint Walker. And I will say this is one of those rare movies where Clint Walker did not take his shirt off. Clint Walker was famous for having a very manly chest. And in many movies in the 1950s and 1960s, they always found some reason for him to take his shirt off and show off his manly chest. But at this point, he was well into his probably early 50s, I would say. So maybe his chest was not quite so manly anymore. Yeah, I put a writer in the contract. We, We don't do that anymore. Yeah, I'm done with that. So they give his backstory, which is, you know, hey, you you, uh, screwed up that last job really bad. Which, how many times have we seen that? Which is kind of a a trope, but they didn't give that information until like 15 minutes before the end of the movie. If you're going to give backstory on a main character, you have to give it right at the beginning. You don't suddenly, just as you're about to go to the final confrontation with the bulldozer, go, oh, and remember that important backstory thing that could have influenced how people saw your character throughout this movie? Well, here it is. So credits stop. We have the scene in the tent. They're sitting there drinking, and one guy says to him, I still think you're responsible for Johnson's death. Yeah, it's terrible writing, just terrible writing. And there's a couple other examples of that. What was that one line? At one point, one of the other characters yells at Clint Walker and goes, Stop being such an ostrich. Yeah, that was <laughs> that weird was piece of writing. Like it was some weird slang? I... <laughs> you know, maybe you have a misprint in the script. Uh, yeah, there was a couple ones like that that were real howlers. So that was really what made this movie bad. And it wasn't a terrible movie. It was a great movie when you're nine years old. Yes. And to give a little background here to help understand where this fairly should be judged is this was one of what was called the ABC movie of the week. So in the early 1970s, ABC began making TV movies. And I think they actually had two a week. It was Tuesday and Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday, I think. They would have a 90-minute movie. And they ran the gamut. They were romance movies. They were mystery movies. They were horror, science fiction. And a serious amount of production effort went into them. Well, yes and no. Well, a couple I'm recalling now... Soul Survivor and Twilight's Last Gleaming, I believe, were both... Twilight's Last Gleaming was not a made-for-TV movie. Really? It was not. It might have showed up on TV, but it was not a It was ABC a movie theatrical. I had no idea. Yeah, I just rewatched that recently, actually. So these were almost always filmed on the back lot. So you saw a lot of familiar territory and familiar buildings and things like that. They ranged from really good, like, let's say, The Night Stalker, with Darren oh, yeah. McGavin, yeah. a classic movie, great movie. The Trilogy of Terror, that's another one that terrorized a whole generation of children with the little doll that comes to life and tries to kill her. That's a cult classic. Right, and there were quite a few others. And Gargoyles, too. Oh, yeah, that was a huge favorite of me and my friends back in high school. With Jennifer Salt? Yes, Jennifer Salt. So the quality of these TV movies ranged from 
pretty good to not very good. And Killdozer falls into the not very good category. I got to admit, you are right. I still have difficulty because I loved it so much when I was nine. Right. And I could see why. You wouldn't catch the bad writing when you were a young kid. And like I said, the best part of it was the special effects and a couple of the sequences where it's charging at people in the middle of the night and the lights are like evil eyes. So it was effective. That's a good word for it. Some of the action scenes were very effective. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's probably a little bit difficult to have a bulldozer run down a guy because realistically... You should be able to outrun a bulldozer. Exactly. Or at least, you know, serpentine. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think the last thing you'd want to do is to find a piece of culvert right in front of the (laughs) thing and crawl inside it. (laughs) That is an infamous scene in the movie, and rightly so. That was one of the low points in the movie where... Some poor dumb guy decided that the best way to escape it was to crawl inside a corrugated iron pipe and be turned into a sandwich. So it's not a great movie. It doesn't deserve the infamy it gets. If you're looking for a cheap thrill, it might be worth watching, possibly. So one thing this reminded me of, and this was just before the movie Jaws came out. This was 74, and I believe Jaws came out in 75. So this reminded me a lot of the run of killer animal movies that popped up in the mid to late 70s, yeah, starting with Jaws. So Jaws was an enormous hit, and that just spawned one movie after another, killer bears, killer whales, killer Basically frogs. every every animal down to worms. Yeah, they literally, literally all the way down to worms. Yeah, that was by not- the way, I would advise watching Squirm. I like that movie. I didn't realize until very recently that the makeup effects, which were kind of gory for its time, like worms burrowing into people's face, were done by Rick Baker. Oh. Legendary makeup artist Rick Baker, Ah. who did American Werewolf in London. It was like one of his early jobs. This was in that same vein where people are being menaced by a non-human thing. In the case of the animal movies, it was all a variety of different animals. But then there are a bunch of killer object movies and TV shows that falls within our purview of the golden age that we might want to review to see how they fit in. Though I think it's okay to creep into the 70s. Yeah, I think we have one in particular, which is very much a golden age kind of a story anyway. So the first one that I had was a movie called GOG, G-O-G. And that was about a research station that had two robots called GOG and MAGOG that were like a little robot with tank treads that had like six different arms coming off of it. One was like a pincher, another one was like a cutter, and one of them was like a welding thing. Incidentally, if you do see this movie, those arms were real. They were taken from like nuclear processing. Really? Yeah, they were the earliest, uh, a nickname for them that Heinlein came up with was Waldo. They were the earliest Waldos. And I'm sure they still have them, just more sophisticated. Well, that comes into play in the plot, which basically the plot's pretty simple, is that these robots begin malfunctioning. And the reason they're malfunctioning is because some evil unnamed... Electricity? No, an evil unnamed country, i.e., Russia, probably, has a satellite that's beaming signals down to them, causing them to malfunction. And one of them tries to get the nuclear reactor to melt down. 
So the scientists are furiously working to try to stop them. And because it's a nuclear reactor, the robot is in a containment area, which has radioactivity in it because they've managed to get some radioactivity release. So, you know, if they try to go inside this containment area, they can either get dosed with radiation or the robot might try to kill them. So it was not bad. It was a fun little movie, better than the average garbage, low-budget science fiction movies of the day had a certain amount of tension, but they were not the most menacing robots ever seen in movie history. Gog never really clicked well with me. I did get all the way through it, maybe because it's it's almost more of a mystery than a science fiction in Well, a yeah, way. they have to figure out why are they doing this. And it takes them a while to figure out that there's this radio signal coming in. So they're trying to block the radio signal, I think, at one point. But it's all right. It's passable entertainment. It was made by Ivan Tours who made later the Flipper TV show and uh, Duck Tari, which we're talking about just a little while ago, uh, a couple of fairly well-regarded TV shows from the 1960s. So he wasn't a hack. Was Hugh Marlowe in it? it was, there was some like one recognizable actor who was in a bunch of science fiction movies was in this one. I can't remember who it was. Uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. At any rate, the other one is one that I haven't seen, but I think you have, the Twonky Oh, yes, yes. Tell us about the Twonky. Another bit of trivia. I believe you have to be an hour and 10 minutes to be officially called a movie. Mm -hmm. So this was not a movie. This was about an hour long. It was like an hour and six minutes, Ah, something like that. Starring Hans Conried. And it follows the story it came from pretty well. I think the ending was altered slightly because they went wacky. If you're going to hire Hans Conried. Wackiness is inevitable. Exactly. Has he ever done an actual serious role in a movie? I don't recall ever seeing him in anything serious. The plot of the Twonky is that Hans Conried orders a new TV set to be delivered. The movie does not cover this, but the story covers how, by accident, an object from the future gets transported to the TV warehouse where it sees the other TVs and imitates their shape. And that's how it ends up at Hans's house. And it's a device designed to fill your every need and to be concerned with your well-being, which is an old trope. It wants you to exercise and eat correctly, though it does allow him to smoke. Of course, given the year it was made, yeah, yeah, doctors were still... Yeah, doctors were smoking because it was healthy for you. And it starts interfering with his life more and more until a lot of wackiness ensues. He tricks it into the car so he can take it somewhere and dump it. But they get into a car accident, and the Twonky is apparently destroyed, and Hans wakes up in the hospital, and guess what they give him as a gift? A brand new TV! (laughs) Wah, wah, wah. All right, so that's kind of on my list of watch movies. I would like to catch up with that at some point. Well, I just spoiled it for you now. Well... But come on, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's a real twisty sort of a movie. Uh, true. It's on the Internet Archive. So the other one that I came up with was an episode of The Outer Limits, which is O-B-I-T. So this is, again, another government research station where new computer system has been installed for security purposes to keep an eye on the scientists and all the workers there to make sure that they're not committing espionage or anything. And it kind of gets out of control, as surveillance systems want to do. Well, I think it's an analogy of the Red Scare, that episode. It it is. I, I think it very much is. 
One of the things that's wonderful about the original Outer Limits is that it often had these very paranoid stories. And this is one of the best paranoid stories because you begin to see this thing interfering in people's lives to the point where murders are committed, marriages are affected. It just gets completely out of control. And like all these other stories, at some point they have to figure out how to stop this thing. Like a couple of the scientists figure out what's going on. And the climax of the story, they've come to find out, well, what really happened was an alien took over the system, and that's what was causing all the problems. Not the government itself installing an intrusive surveillance system, monitoring every aspect of your life. Oh, no, that wasn't the problem. It was an alien who screwed up this perfectly good thing the government had made. It's been working out great for China. Yeah, so once they defeat the the alien personally and get rid of him, everything goes back to normal. Normal being having every moment of your life surveilled by the government. (laughs) It's a very paranoid story. So you said it was an analogy for the Red Scare, but the ending of it, that it wasn't the system, it was an alien that was the problem, kind of undermines that analogy if that's what they intended. Because the status quo at the end of the episode is going back to, well, thank God that we can get back to the business of surveilling people. It's a weird ending and a weird affirmation of Cold War philosophy. Still, it's a good episode, though. It had that paranoia running throughout it that The Outer Limits was so good at. Directed by Gerd Oswald, who is a master of heightening tension and paranoia by having extreme close-ups of sweaty faces. You know, it's like an iconic thing from The Outer Limits. This extreme close-up of some guy is sweating profusely. His eyes are popping out for whatever reason. And Oh, and Dutch angles. They love and, that. And Dutch angles, yeah. So did you see that one, or does that ring a bell for you at all? Obit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. So you uh, felt the same way I did on that one, or? I thought the ending that it was an alien was a disappointment. I thought it took the air out of the point they were making. Yeah, that's kind of the way I felt too, that instead of questioning the idea of completely intrusive surveillance being a bad thing, they let that whole point off the hook. And it could have been a much better episode if they wouldn't have done that. Well, it would have been made around 1960, I think. 63. Okay. 1963. That was right before Kennedy was murdered. So the other one that I came up with was The Changeling. This is the one where a probe is sent from Earth back in the 20th century and travels out beyond the solar system and is captured by an alien race who modify it and it becomes self-aware and the Enterprise takes it in to examine it and it begins wandering around the Enterprise threatening to destroy the Enterprise. So, you know, of course, it ends with Captain Kirk personally reasoning with it and convincing it to blow itself up. So it's a very typical Star Trek episode. The thing that's the most interesting about this is that it was pretty much the basis for Star Trek The Motion Picture. If you remember, that movie had a very similar plot. Yeah, with V'ger. V'ger, right. Pretty much the same story. It's okay. It's a mid-range Star Trek episode, I would say. It's not bad. I still think Star Trek The Movie was good. It had a lot it had to carry. Yeah, for what it had to do. It had to reintroduce all of the characters. It had to deliver a ton of fan service. Because let's not forget, this is the first big budget adaptation of a TV show I think that was ever done. And I think it was in production 
before Star Wars. It just didn't finish before. No, I don't think so, because it came out in 79. It was in development for a long time. What actually happened, this is a bit of a diversion, but this is worth talking about, is that Roddenberry wanted to do a new Star Trek series. So he and a couple of the people from the old show were working with the networks, trying to come up with a palatable idea to have a new Star Trek series. And that kind of fell apart. And then Star Wars came along, and it was like, oh, yeah, here's $10 million. Do you want to make a space movie? Please, make a space movie right away. So they shifted gears, and they dumped the idea they had for the TV show, and some parts of it carried over into the movie. I remember hearing something about them having built sets and using Well, there, them. Yeah, there was like uh, conceptual drawings, and then some of the characters from the TV show carried over into the movie. But it was like Alien, the movie Alien. That never would have got made if it wasn't for Star Wars. Right after Star Wars, every movie studio was like, here, here's a bunch of money. Please make a space movie immediately. Even Disney. Yeah, Black Hole. Yeah, Yeah, that was their answer. All of them interesting in their own right. But seriously, I mean, there had been made-for-TV movies adapted from TV shows, like all of the uh, reunion shows that were made over the years. The 80s had all these reunions, like Return to Gilligan's Island and... The Adams Family Part 2. Whatever Happened to Dobie Gillis. Yeah, but those were made for TV. I cannot think of a theatrical movie other than that Star Trek movie that was a continuation of a TV show. Only because you say it now, but I have the vaguest memory that this was an unusual thing, that this was breaking new ground at the time having this movie made from the series. Yeah, I mean, how do you do that? Nobody had ever done that before. It's like, how do you take a TV show and turn it into a movie it had never been done before. I'm like you. I give that movie a pass. There's elements of it that aren't great, but it's not bad. It's better than the later original series, like Star Trek V, Star Trek VI. You know, once they got past the humpback whale one. There was a lot of criticism of four. Then five came out, and I swear to God, everyone's opinion of four changed. Yeah, that's what happened. It's like... Yeah, maybe the last one wasn't quite so bad, because <laughs> five stunk. That was the one that Shatner directed, right? Yes, but there was heavy studio interference. They took his main point and said, the movie's great, but that absolute main point you're making, no, you can't have that. We want to show this in the southern states. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's all I've got. Did you have any other Machines Gone Wild movies that you can think of, or TV shows? I do have two more. Colossus, The Forbin Project. Oh, I loved that movie when I was a kid. That was mid-70s? 1970, 69 or 70. Filled with paranoia about these mysterious machines called computers and what they can do. Yes. That was the first Skynet movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It literally was Skynet, because I think they had it linked into the defense systems. Yeah, to the Russians' equivalent. Again, A coincidence that a movie made at one point in the past, the same plot elements show up in a James Cameron movie. (laughs) Where have we heard that before? But it's a really good movie. It is. It is. It's a real intelligent movie, very well made, good tension. I don't want to say slow. It's a deliberate movie. It takes its time telling the story. It doesn't have a lot of pyrotechnics. A lot of it is this one scientist who's trying to reason with the computer, trying to figure out a way to to thwart them. It's good. I would say it's one of the best science fiction movies of the 1960s, for sure. Okay. I would put it on my top 10 list easily. If only because of how well it was done. Yeah, very well done. 
The other thought I had, technically, this is not an object, but it really is in the spirit of these movies, Steven Spielberg's, I think, first movie, Duel. Yes, that's his first actual movie. Again, it was an ABC movie of the week. It was. It was made for TV, as we were talking about previously. Arguably, that's the best ABC movie of the week ever made. It is. I thought it was a theatrical movie. It was overseas. It was fairly successful. That's one of the reasons why he got to make his next movie, was it was released overseas as a theatrical movie and did very well, or did well enough where they said, okay, kid, let's see what else you got. And he wound up being able to make The Sugarland Express, which was his second movie, which you may not have seen, and a lot of people haven't seen. I haven't. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's a chase movie. Uh, a young couple on the run, police are chasing them, part of a genre that was very popular at the time. So yeah, even though there was a human being involved in Duel, a human being that you only saw their elbow. Yeah, like once. Yeah. It was very much like Killdozer. Maybe that's where some of the better scenes in Killdozer were lifted from, because I believe Duel was made in 1972. So that would have been a few years before Killdozer. The whole thing of the front of the machine looking like almost like a monster or a dinosaur. Yeah. A living thing and... And the sound effect. And the sound effects of the engine going, you know, and, and, and sounding again like an animal almost. It was repeated in Killdozer. And as I said, that's one of the more effective parts of that movie. Both movies had a monster note when they would show that front end. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I'm thinking that Killdozer, to their credit, probably stole a little bit of that from Duel. Good for them. Any other ones you can think of? I think that wraps it up. Same here. All right, well, that's it for episode 51. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.